Hey there, and welcome back to Industry Town. Uh, somehow, this quickly, we are already 10 episodes in, and I wanted to take this moment just to uh, reflect a little bit on what we've gotten so far. I know for myself as a learner and as a human, uh, I often need to hear things a bunch of times for it really uh, to sink in. I, a podcast I really like is The Moment with Brian Koppelman, and he has a guy named Seth Godin come on. And one of Seth's points, he works with people on creativity, is that uh, if you don't have the right uh, inner monologue, if you don't have the right tape in your head playing, that one of the things you can do, and that can be about your creativity, it can be about uh, your view of yourself, it can be about your uh, entrepreneurship, anything. Whenever you don't have a good inner monologue or a tape about, find a new one, find a different tape and listen to it on repeat. And I find that that's part of the reason I'm doing this, is to learn a lot of the things or relearn a lot of the things that. Uh, I know, but I want to know on a deeper level. So I went through the first 10 and I picked out uh, about five minutes from each one that just really stuck out to me that I thought had something really uh, interesting, something really practical or was just really, really fun. Uh, So yeah, I hope you enjoy. Uh, But we're going to have a little bit of everyone coming up, starting with uh, Patrick Kavanaugh and I talking about bad audition stories. We'll also be back with new episodes on Monday. Hope you enjoy. Lock it up. Very quiet and still. Ready. Scene one, take three, A mark. I want to start off with the idea of, like, let's put some vulnerability on the table just mm. to, like, rip the Band-Aid off. Okay, take my pants off. Um, cool. Okay, and just Here got we it. Go. Um, I would love to hear a terrible audition story from you. Oh, my God. If you want, I can lead first if you want to think about one. But I want us both to put I a bad one. audition story out there. I have one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's actually funny? It's actually one of my greatest auditions followed by the one of the worst ones I've ever had. So this was like 10 years ago. Um, it was for a pilot that JJ Abrams was doing for, I think it was HBO, April Webster casting. Okay. It was a, it was about cancer and like these different storylines and, and the character I was going in for was a kid who, who has a strained relationship with his dad and, and he ends up breaking his leg and he's in the hospital and he finds out that he has like this terminal bone cancer like and Oof. and the last scene is just this gut-wrenching terrible moment with his dad and he's at the end of it it's you know it says sobs and you know I try to avoid the tear train but but put yourself in the right mind frame or whatever so I go in for my my first read with April I feel really connected to the story been you know I listen to music when it's usually sad stuff to get me in a mood and get me to a place and that last scene happened and it I was so connected to all of it. It was one of those moments where it's like I went somewhere else and it just hit me and I lost it at the end. I was just like a sob fest without any destination for tears. Like it just felt as honest as possible. Like she even came around and like held me from behind and was like, it's okay. And like trying to call somebody to pick you up. Yeah, seriously. She's like, are you okay? Uh, And so, and then she said to me, we finished, she calmed down and she's like, okay, cool. Uh, You think you can come back and do that for JJ tomorrow? And I was like, yeah, you know, I'm like walking out of the car. I'm like, yeah, hell yeah. I'm going to come back and slay this. Like this part is mine. I feel so connected to it. I come back the next day and all I'm trying to do is recreate yesterday. All I'm trying to do is get to that moment where I release the tears. All I'm trying to do is do what Patrick on Thursday did. Eat my day old bread, please. It was delicious yesterday. And I get in there and I see Mr. J.J. Abrams and I 
just it, no connection. There's none. And it's almost as if I had never looked at the material. It was almost as if I had no connection to a kid with a broken leg who hates his father, who thinks he's going to die, and what's, what's going to happen with this relationship. I lost all semblance of honesty because I was so focused on recreating. And it, I, I remember walking out of that room being like, it's amazing in 24 hours to feel like this assassin of an actor to then feel like the biggest fraud of all time. Because they were like, great, thank you, at the end of the scene. It just was gut-wrenching. But it was a good lesson, I'll tell you that much. Does it ever feel like levels in a video game? Where it's like, first you just gotta like, can I just impress this associate? Can I do my job? Can I show up? This person seems like so important when you first show up in town. You don't realize the limits to everyone's job. Seriously. But then it's like, okay, well now I can meet the official casting director. And then I can meet the showrunner. And then all of a sudden it starts being people like J.J. Abrams. Or like, God, if you get to go in for Quentin Tarantino, you are not regularly practicing killing it with a certain level of precision and like, no, I like what I do. I take ownership of what I do. I feel like eventually that's going to that's gonna happen. Um, okay, here's mine. Here's my here's my terrible audition story. Yes. This was for, I believe, a Lifetime movie. Oh, well, we're um, starting off strong already. Right. Okay, so with Sigourney Weaver. Ooh. So it was a chance to like act with an Oscar yeah. winner. And it was something about, uh, based on a true story about, forgetting the kid's name, but a kid who was sent to like a, he was, he was gay and he was sent to a conversion therapy and he died there. So real That's intense Sad stuff Yes Mine also had a lot of tears Yeah And I was feeling like Oh I have to hit this mm-hmm. I was really new to LA When I got this And I was having trouble Hitting it consistently And I was thinking Oh every time I rehearse it I should probably get there perfectly And you know when you're right. new And you're like overworking it And so every 10 minutes I'm thinking I need to cry Right And then that's dying And I'm starting to panic I'm starting to futurize Where it doesn't happen And, and I get some question From my manager Wondering why And so I decide Well I've heard that onions Make you cry <laughs> And so I oh, like no, I buy an amazing. onion I buy an onion And I start rehearsing At my house and I'm like, okay, man, if I just like get a little on my fingers, I touch my eyes. Oh my God. I'll start to cry. <laughs> and I like kind of figured it out. And this was when it was I was like the poor man's tear stick. I smelled like a subway sandwich. So I go in there and I straight up have like a fucking bag of onions in my pocket. This is when I really thought like the industry was something you could outsmart. Yeah. Like if I just figure out no. the way to do it, I'll get it. And the funny thing is they've probably seen every trick in the book. Maybe not that one. I don't think they've seen that one. So <laughs> here's the worst thing about onions. I don't know if you know this. It stops working because whatever enzyme is in there, your body does get used oh. to it. And like 20 minutes later, it'll reset. So I'm in the waiting room and they're making me wait a while and I'm nervous. I'm thinking like, I got my onions. Do I stink like onions? What's going on? Why is everyone staring like, at me? Is, I got to be ready to go. Like, do I have it like on my fingers, you know, just to get to the eyes? And, and so I'm in the waiting room. I keep just making myself just start crying from onions as I'm just pacing, just rubbing onion into my eye. That by the time I get to the audition, I absolutely reek of onions and they do not work anymore. That's hilarious. And that's all I remember from that audition. So I do feel like, um, you know, I did audition again after that. Right. Which is without onions in your pocket. (laughs) That is the note I should have taken from that. No more onions. No more onions. Next up, Jeff Witzke talks about learning close-up acting from Hugh Jackman while getting to work on the set of The Contender cool cool thing was the next day after this is when I shot my scene and Hugh was in my scene 
Um, we're we're best friends now. Hugh. Um, Wolfie. Wolfie. And I found a moment when we had a, a down moment where Hugh was just, I think, checking his phone for messages. And I said, uh, Hugh, and I had met Hugh the day before and Jason had introduced me as this one of my, you know, my good friends. And Hugh was uh, very cool about that. And so I said, hey, Hugh, can I, do you mind if I ask you a question about acting? And, I, and, and all of a sudden the Wolverine claws came out. He's like, get out. No. Um, but he, he, he was sitting down and he literally leapt up. His, his eyes sparkled and he said, absolutely. And, and uh, it was like talking to a 10-year-old boy about his new truck. You know? So what did you ask him? So I asked him. I said, I, um, I, said, I happened to notice. I watched you and Vera shoot your scene yesterday. And, I, and I, um, I'm just curious. Do you do anything different in between the master, the wide, and the close-up in your process? And he thought for a moment. He's like, that's, that's a good question. And I do a horrible uh, Australian accent. but um, We'll put in his. We'll yeah, dub that in. Exactly, dub that in. Yeah. He's like, no. No, you... Well, he's like, obviously there's the, the old standard, you do less in the close-up. But he's like, as far as process, no, no. I do, no. The ex- I do the exact same thing. And, I, and the reason I asked that question, it wasn't a trick question, but because I noticed a difference. What did you see? What I saw was he was more still in the close-up. He was more, um, he took more time in that close-up. And he was just that one notch deeper in his performance. And my curiosity factor was, is this from years of just doing this and he knows? Or does Hugh Jackman know, I dial it down 30%. Like, that, is that a conscious decision? And it was, for me, it was comforting to know that, no, it's just part of, he just knows to do that. It's an instinct. It's an instinct. Um, but there was this definite difference. Um, not huge, but you could feel it. Yeah, you could feel it. His stillness. And I said, your stillness was unbelievable. And he's like, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> and he said, but I will tell you, uh, I will tell you something. You can tell your acting students. I said, oh, what is that, Mr. Hugh, Hugh Jackman, that I may yeah, tell my acting ahead. students? Um, he said, we are shooting two cameras on this. So he said, what you saw happened is there was a camera getting my coverage and a camera getting Vera's coverage. And a lot of times in films, we do my turn, your turn, my turn, your turn to get the coverage. And so you have to do the scene over and over again. He said, we got to be in the same scene. And he's like, that makes a world of difference. And he's like, if I had known about this earlier in my career, I would have begged for it on every film for every time there's a major scene like this. He's like, because it's just, it's so much easier because you're in the scene. You're both equally invested. It's both of your coverage. The scene matters equally to both of you. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And then the stillness that you're talking about. Do you think that most of that stillness ends up in the final cut? Or do you think that a lot of that gets cut, but it allows the actors to take their time to find specificity or their breath or their emotion or whatever? I think what it does is it gives the editor, because um, I've, I've got some friends who are editors, and it gives them a chance to really craft the performance one more level beyond with what's there and it doesn't rush anything Liam McKendrick gave uh, one of my favorite interviews we've done so far and uh, in this little section she talks about lessons learned from making her first feature MFA which she was the screenwriter of produced and acted in 
So MFA, uh, what are a couple things that you wish you had known before that that you didn't, that you learned doing it? Oh, man. Can you share any yeah. bit of why? Like, I don't want to pry totally. too much. But I mean, it... it uh, but I'm going to pry. <laughs> no, please. I think I wish that people told me some of these things, you know, because like I said, when I started with going and, and, and asking everybody, how, did, how do I finance a film? And the, the great advice that everybody gave me was you go and you tell every single person that you know that you're making a movie. Do you know anybody that might be interested in financing and in, 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 uh, investing in film? And he, this, somebody said to me, you might not know people with money to be spent on film, but you know people that know people with money to be spent on film. And film is a sexy thing to invest in. It might not be the most reliable. It's definitely not the most reliable. It's definitely a gamble. Did those investors make any money back? Yeah, they actually were like close to breaking, like paying everybody back. We're like getting there. We're like inching it. Because here's what you don't really, here's the one thing I wish I knew. You can sell the movie for more than you made it for. A big chunk is going to your sales team. Certain territories don't pay you. Then they, then your, your um, sales team has to turn around and sue them. But now the film has been on the market for a year. It's probably being pirated. They can give you back your film, but you just lost your year. And someone's on the hook for the legal fees to sue those people. Completely. I mean, there's, and, and, and I was like, we sold my film for more than it was made. How is it possible that we are still just getting these checks that are like inching it? Do you know what I mean? And I'm like, wow, I guess I wish, so that's one thing I think just to know is like, Keep your costs so low. If you can make your film for a million dollars, why are you making your film for a million dollars unless Emma Stone and Jeff Bridges are in it? Like, make your film for a hundred thousand dollars. Make your film for two. Make your film for not a dollar more than you need. Because you have to, you, if you make a film for five hundred thousand dollars and it sells for five hundred thousand dollars, that is a big amount that you sold it for that is like very rare that that's happening and my film premiered at South by Southwest like in competition like we had a pretty good star and we sold the film but like it did not sell for $500,000 in the United States so luckily I didn't make my film for $500,000 I made it for way less than that but your film is considered a failure if you didn't recoup that money, but if you made your film for fifty thousand and sold it for five hundred thousand, like you just killed it. So where are the ways to keep costs down I from think, someone who's done it? I think you need to cut down those locations. Like I, what was I thinking with eight million characters? What was I thinking with the police precinct? <laughs> like what? What was I back thinking? to the police again? What was that shit? And somebody brought this up, which was like so smart, and I didn't realize. It's like we, as an as an audience, as a country, have a very we are used to seeing Criminal Minds and Hawaii Five O and all of CSI, all these really glossy um, interpretations of what a, it is to be a policeman or, and and what those precincts look like. And it's like all touch screens. I did, and like. I did an episode of SWAT, and when I saw what their command center oh, looked no. like, I mean, what did it look like? I, I mean, amazing. For them, it makes good TV. It looks right. like Minority Report. It looks like Minority. I Report. mean, it's the it's more exactly. expensive than every Apple Store put together. Hundred percent. Yeah, right? everything's a touch screen. Everyone's yeah. like got these amazing Under Armour shirts on and like yeah. tactical vests and all this stuff. And totally. It's just, and how are you supposed to compete with that with your little tiny indie film? So I had a smart director that was like, "How about we put this outside of the building? How about we make this a walk and talk through the neighborhood?" Genius. Just you know, ideas like that. And because here's my university, because we have to shoot at Chapman because we can't be moving all over the place. So they're like, here's your like, 
you know, classroom, they had to turn into a police precinct. And I'm like, oh shit. And my art department is like, yeah, no, that's not going to work. So, you know, all of these things, I'm just trying to, and actually, we actually did do reshoots in an actual police station, which was amazing. But like, that was because one of our girls, her dad was a police officer and came and helped out on the film. Like, that doesn't happen. Do you know what I mean? So, and they don't usually let you shoot inside a police department. So, I mean, be smart about how many locations you have. Be smart about how many actors you actually need. Like, that's why I get so jealous and so, like, I'm applauding them constantly, these filmmakers that make these, like, incredible one-location films. Like, The Invitation, did you see that movie? I haven't yet. Oh, it's so dope. It's a handful of actors. It's a dinner party that goes very, very, very wrong. And it's a horror film. And it's awesome. And it's very tense. And I I was just watching it, and I was like, these... Incredible, you know. Why didn't I think of that? Now we've got Randall Park uh, on screen acting, and also what it was like playing Kim Jong Un in the interview. That's a thing. I've done scenes where I know I did not give a single good take, but then I'll watch it like in the final cut, and I'll be like, "Oh my gosh, that was like one of my better scenes," you know. Like, uh, even though I know I wasn't even really that in it, you know, it's just. Because they, you know, it's it, it, it shaped. It's shaped. Well, there's you so know. many people who are supporting you to make sure that works. Totally. Their own little Richter scale from within. Yeah, yeah. Is, is useful, I think, almost only to you. Yeah, but that's why it's like, don't beat yourself over the you know, head if you feel like you're not nailing it. Because if the director says, moving on, you know... And if you trust the director, and the, if the director is not, like, giving you the evil eye, that means... The director probably got what she wants, you know. I like that. Yeah. Absolutely. I still remember I, I recently directed a short film and one of the actresses in it kept on saying, I don't like blinking. Yeah. I read that in the Michael Caine book. I'm not going to yeah. do it. And I thought, well, she's good and wacky actresses or whatever. Yeah. And then I w- was watching in the in the editing room. She's easier to cut. Yeah, yeah. And every thought she has is much clearer. It doesn't look like she's trying to stare at people. Yeah. But I'll tell you, there's a lot of truth to it. Because all yeah, the for thoughts sure. are behind it's, the eyes. It's behind the eyes, yeah, for sure. Um, can I ask you about the interview? Yeah. Um, what was it like living your life during that craziness? Can you just give us a window into that? And has it fully subsided? Uh, it's fully subsided, for sure. Okay. Um, but it was... A mix of things because uh, it was uh, my first kind of lead role in a movie, you know, where I was like on a poster, you know, and um, and it was a, a big deal for me. And I knew it was a provocative kind of thing to, you know, be entering into. But I, I, I had no idea that that would be the outcome. You know, we all thought we had a great comedy, you know, on our hands. And, and the movie was uh, screened to test audiences. It was testing really well. And a lot of people involved with the movie were telling me, like, how great I was in it. And it really, like, I thought this was going to change my life. Like, and before the interview, I was working steadily, but I was definitely, like, just getting by. You know, I wasn't, like, I I wasn't, like, uh, um, in no way, where, near where I wanted to be as an actor. I was just, you know, I was doing a lot of commercials. I was, mm-hmm. uh, um, I was doing great, 
and 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 probably and kind of living my dream but i wanted so much more and i felt like this the interview was gonna like take me to that next level so how do you prepare to play kim jong-un i just i, I like i mean i like worked so hard on that that is character it basing it off of tape Obviously, the entire piece is based on him, but it's a yeah. version of him. Yeah, How I mean, we... he was so, he is so mysterious to this day. You know, like we don't see any footage of him except for what's released on in North Korean like media. You know, like, I mean, there's very little of him that we know of in terms of his personality, in terms of his likes, dislikes, you know. So I got to shape a lot. Mm-hmm. And it would, and that would have been fine because no one is like, saying, hey, that's not authentic to who he is. You know, people don't know. Yeah. So I got to really shape a lot. But I did like to do a lot of research on him. Was and the basketball a choice? Was that already in the script? Something that was in a script, but he, it, it's also... Casual missing. <laughs> so, so brilliant to me. I mean, that that was in the script. But but I knew just from the tons of research I did on him that this what And it really was a connector for me to him. Like, this is a guy who was obsessed with basketball, obsessed with, like, American movies... You know, obsessed with, uh, uh, um, you know, and he'd be sitting in the classroom drawing pictures of Michael Jordan. You know, I mean, like, this is like, this is who I was as a kid, you know, like, so. Except for he claims to hate us and throw (laughs) that in there. Yeah, yeah, but he claims to hate us for, you know, uh, a very good reason. You know, he was born into this. Yeah. Um, into this uh, really? worldview, yeah. this worldview. So, uh, so I, you know, I, I took all these things that I could identify. I mean, I did a lot of work on that character, and and because of that, when it, you know, when, when we were shooting it, I was just so in it. I was in the pocket. You know, I felt like this is what acting is. This were is, you like Daniel Day Lewis fun. waking up as Kim Jong Un every day? No, I wasn't like that. That is a sketch, though. <laughs> yeah. I was not that, but I was like, it was a thrill because, because I feel like up until that point, as much as I loved acting outside of like doing like stuff with the theater group I was in and, and stuff, you know, uh, that I had written on my own. This was like the most I could really dig into a part. You get the, you get an accent, you get a body ch- change. Yeah. Yeah. How yeah. How much of that is, uh, stuffing and makeup and how much, I mean, I gain? gained as much, you know, I had a, the original plan was to put prosthetics on me and like a couple weeks before my first, uh, day on set, they nixed it. So I had like a couple weeks to like gain as much weight as possible. Is that fun? It was is- so fun. <laughs> Uh, um, it was so fun and, and, uh, but yeah, yeah, it was great. It was just a great experience. And I I, watch him with Trump, like walking into, walking across the DMZ. Do you, do you find yourself filling in the thoughts in his head? Do you, or is it no, no, there's no connection anymore. More like you, uh, like hypothesize. Are you endlessly curious or is it kind of that chapter is a little past? Um, I mean, I, I'm still curious about it and I, uh, I think that he is, uh, you know, he knows, he, he's a lot more aware of the dynamic and the situation than Trump is, I think, you know, mm-hmm. I think he's, he's a lot more in control yeah. and, um, um, yeah, it's, it's real, it's, it's, it's scary stuff. It's yeah. scary stuff. But, uh, but, um, yeah, yeah. I think I'll always be fascinated by it. 
Next up, uh, Stephanie Black, amazing actress, artistic director of Iama Theater Company. Uh, she talks about unemployment insurance, something I feel like not every actor knows about, and they all should. I went more into event coordination, which in a way is producing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that turned out to be um, a really good way for me to make that side money when, especially when acting started to really kick in. And then, and then there was like a time when, and that's about, I think when actually I started teaching. So that's about when um, I was like kind of living off of acting jobs, um, teaching and, and coaching was just starting. And I discovered like the magic of unemployment. <laughs> and that was, Speak on the magic of unemployment. I think oh, a lot of people don't know about this. The magic of unemployment. Um, uh, you know, and people are so weird about unemployment too. People are weird about unemployment. Everybody needs to know that there's a certain percentage of your paycheck that gets taken out that goes towards your unemployment you benefit. You already paid it. You already paid it. It's your money. When you get that benefit, it's the money that has been taken out of your paycheck. It's your money. When they say you're living off the government, it's if it's true if you're the one who paid the government in the first place. Exactly. It's your money. Take it. Take it. People so when do you file for unemployment? You when file, would one? So one files for unemployment when a job has ended. So short-term employment. So technically it's when you're like let go or fired. Mm-hmm. Um, so but also when a job ends right that's what i'm saying it's short-term employment so like when a job ends that that technically means that you've been let go Mm -hmm. because the job is over so it doesn't necessarily mean you've been fired or it was bad it just means that it's done so i booked my first national let's say and i'm enjoying the session fee and oh my god there are these residuals that are happening there are these buyouts and i actually have some money and then it ends Mm -hmm. the run ends that's i won congratulations to me i got this booking good for you thank you you're choosing me with some water i appreciate (laughs) it um and instead of thinking oh now i'm back to just having whatever income I was making before I can file for unemployment right yeah you can and it's amazing and so basically gives you a little breath it gives you a little bit of relief Um, you can also be earning money while you're collecting your unemployment benefit you just have to claim it so um, people like don't I mean my god have I been through I've had years of of experience I've had claims that I've had to then go to like the unemployment court for to like like the the system's also super flawed because there it's not um, it's all based on machines and like uh, but before it used to be you didn't file online you you like had to write things out by hand and so they scan that into machine and like a comma could look like a period could look like a different number it could be a scrap of food who knows what it is and it can like fuck up the whole system and so I had something where their system had like sent me too many claim forms that like overlapped and so they were saying that I was overpaid um, but and it was like thousands of dollars. And I was like, no. And so I went and because I'm super type A, I keep all of my records. Like my, I literally have an expanding file folder that I keep every receipt for three years. I'm real anal about this stuff because it's just, it just helps me. I get paper receipts for everything. People always look at me like, especially in like the bougie coffee shops that you do everything through like their iPads. And I'll be like, can I have a printed receipt? And those that do have it will be like, oh, fine, and like hand it to me. And those that don't are like, oh, we don't do that. It's email only. Okay, so and I'm like, okay. And then I go home and I print out my receipt and I put it in my file. Um, so anyway, uh, but I won that and I got I got the money back. So anyway, unemployment is a tool that actors have at our disposal because we need to survive in between these jobs. And sometimes you can't get a full-time job because it interferes with your ability to audition. I think people forget that it's actually unemployment insurance. Like this is, it's a, it's a thing. It's not just that like you get this benefit out of nowhere. It's an insurance that you pay into to cover the times when you are You're not, not working. making money. Yeah. And it's not just like, oh, everyone needs money. It's that everyone does better when everyone has money. Yeah, there's just nothing wrong. I think p- people just feel like that there's something like 
bad, negative, or somehow you're mooching off the government. Like there's all these just weird feelings around it. And I just say it is a tool. I know um, like dozens of casting directors who when they're on hiatus from their shows, they collect their unemployment benefit. Because they can't take on another job necessarily, but they're on hiatus for the season. So they need something to tide them over until they go back. So everybody's doing it. So that was super helpful to me. Um, I would say in my like late twenties, early thirties, I don't, I don't care about aging myself. It's fine. Um, so I was doing that and, and that was when I was still, the theater company was still growing and I wasn't able to make a paycheck or anything from that. So So I really needed it. uh, Various kind of freelancing service jobs Mm -hmm. mixed with unemployment, mixed with smacking jobs here and there to to count on. But when they come in, they help. Absolutely. And those residuals um, were, are amazing as well. Next up is Sarah Fletcher. She was just one of the leads in Lifetime's movie about the Nexium sex cult. And we use that opportunity to talk about how to not judge your characters. You're trying to see, you know, the like all the steps in the paths that that character makes, right? You're like, okay, I have to get from point A to point B. And to get there, there's a huge journey and a huge emotional arc that has to happen. And why is this character making those choices? And I think the writer has probably one idea, a director has one idea, as an actor has one idea. And then eventually, you know, all of those things sort of culminate into this one sort of trifecta of things. So I hear you on that, and I—I I mean, that's all well and good to me. I—I I, mm-hmm. I get the idea that like we're not supposed to judge him, and that's—that's—that's that's, that's what we're told. That's what we're taught. <laughs> Was that my the, very PC answer? <laughs> but that's the but the first scene of it. You're already teaching this shit. Yeah, you're in. You've, you're drinking the Kool Aid. Yeah. Um, and so I guess what I'm saying is like I, I get well, intellectually. The... I can't judge them. I'm wondering practically. How did you? Read what this person has done, right? And not get influenced by I've got to be culty. I've got to sell, you know, I've basically got to be like Manson Light, you know? I mean, I think that anyone, and I don't know this for sure, but my guess from all the cult stuff I've read is that when you are fully involved in a cult, you're not, you don't think you're involved in a cult. So, like, you can't go into it with that headspace. You can't go into it and be like, I'm I'm in a cult and I'm going to bring people down. So that's the question. What do you think she thought she was doing? I think she, I mean, I don't want to speak for her, but I think that truthfully and honestly, I think she thought she was bringing awareness to people and love. And I think she thought she was doing good. I mean, everything I have read, I don't, I don't think, I don't think she, I, I think, I mean, I don't, I don't want to like pass judgment on who she is as a person because I think what she's going through right now has got to be a really wild traumatic situation and I can't even fathom it. And, and as somebody who's tried to read everything and, and do her story justice, I just wanted to like do her story justice. And, but I guess what I'm thinking is this, when you hear about people who often end up in cults, you are hearing about people who are lost souls. Rarely right. do they have a really good income, a following, adoration, right. a, a purpose. She I had think, all those things. And so what was she looking for in this? I think that like one of the things that has been the most interesting, which is something that like all of the actors discussed at length as we were all doing the movie, was that these were all successful somewhat wealthy I mean you had to have some certain amount of money or access to money in some ways uh women who were intelligent well-read schooled you know these aren't people who are necessarily they're they're struggling but like not struggling in like a traditional they you know they they had all these things going for them they were not people who were like down on their luck and who you know were sleeping on the streets you know they had a lot of opportunity and 
So why? I think that for all of us was a huge question. Why were these people so sucked in? And I think at the base of it, I think these people were all searching for something more in life. I think that they were all looking for soul searching. They were looking for a, a higher reason or whatever. And then I think that what happens is you start out there, but then, you know, like Allison was in it for over 12, I believe over 12 years. You know, when you start there and then you, it's years of the same stuff and it's years of the same, you know, brainwashing or language or whatever, I think that eventually you don't even realize where you're at, if that makes sense. Like, I think that like when you're 10 years into it and and that's all you know, and these are all the, and all the people you hang out with are all saying the same stuff. Think about this. Like, here's a question for you. If you hung out with a different group of friends than you're hanging out with now, maybe people who, I don't know, like this is the question that your parents say to you, right? When you're a kid, like if you hang out with bad kids, you know, who are doing drugs, are you going to, you're going to start doing drugs. And I think that there is something to be said about like whoever you're hanging out with, the, the energy of the group, you know, whatever I think influences you. Next up, David Avid talks to us about Instagram and how he's found ways to use it to express his creativity and actually feel good about himself. I was like, I'm going to put my effort into this. Do you remember, like, was there a decision moment where you just like lying on like asleep and <laughs> right out of bed, I need to make Instagram content. <laughs> uh, something very similar to that. Actually, I met a guy who, and it leads back to why I have 46,000 uh, followers is there's a, a program. So how Instagram grows many times is there's a strategy called follow to follow back. The idea is if I follow someone, they might notice I followed them and follow me back. So it's called the follow to follow back strategy. Now there is a this company that had automated this system. So they're following up to a million people per year and that's getting, so it's kind of like PR, it's like Instagram PR. So I met somebody that had this program, they've said, oh, I went from like 2,000 to like 10,000. And I was like, oh great, so if, if that kind of thing exists where I can get a following like that's just happening behind the scenes, then let me put it on myself to then make great content that those new followers can then see. So I it kind of when I saw one piece of the puzzle, it kind of started the other piece, the content piece, which is the more important piece. Were you already making your own content? I w- no, I wasn't really. I, I, I maybe had, I used to, when I first started, I have a green screen and I would find scenes from movies and I would intercut myself into the scenes. I remember <laughs> Right, like Goodwill Hunting or Game of Thrones. And that was just, and I just did that for fun. It was just like some people play baseball. I just make green screen Instagram videos. And, you know, it started, uh, people started liking it. And then I started doing this thing called Honest Headshots, which is just a headshot where I put vulnerable, feelings I'm looking at one headshot. right now it's a picture of you with your uh, hand on your chin yes it's giving like such a, a wonderfully in on the joke shit eating grin like Eddie Haskell would be proud the eyes are popping by Thank the way you. in this Leah Hubner uh, headshot by the way there we go let's, yes. let's plug her yes. and then um, and then the quote says I've turned to Instagram for validation that's right couldn't be more real this just gives people you know a little bit of an idea of what yeah, content I have a, is I have another one where I have like the another kind of like shit eating grin on my face it looks a little pained and I say my face when a friend books a role so it's just meant for a place for people to come and say ah like you say the th- I've, I've met i've actually had people 
see me on the street, strangers. And they were like, Dave from Instagram. And it was like the best moment of my life. And because I've tapped, I found my kind of niche that I tapped into something that actors are like, you say the things that I feel. And so anyway, you have a little bit of those feedback and that got me really excited. I was like, these are touching a nerve. This is entertaining people. And that kind of set me off on the races. So practically speaking, when the fuck are you doing this? Like most people, like I know a lot of people who would love to make more content or would, you know, lots of people say, Oh, I wish I could just, you know, make a lot of Instagram content, but I'm working right. seven jobs and right. I've got my audition or I've got my relationship or I've got whatever yeah. the hell that everyone has. Yeah. How are you creating the time to do this and how are you doing it so consistently? Something I learned in salon is you can teach somebody to market for a week. Right. But if that process is too difficult, they're not going to keep doing it. And then they're actually going to be, then they're going to say, well, marketing is stupid. Yeah. So how, how, where's the time for this and how do you make it sustainable? I think the best answer to that question, because often I get people say, you know, I know I should be doing Instagram, but oh, like I hate it. Or like, oh, I know I should be doing Instagram, (laughs) but I hate it. Right. And when people say that, my response is always, you know what, then don't do it. Like, I do it because it's fun for me. I bring it back to it's a hobby. We all have hobbies that we carve out time for in our lives. Acting class, it's not a hobby, it's a pursuit. But in a way, we've chosen to carve out in our busy lives acting class and rehearsal and whatever else, a sport or whatever. You've made time for it. You've made time for it. So... If you're gonna admit, if you're gonna decide social media is something that you want to do, decide to love it and decide what about it that you love. For me, it's a creative outlet. Like, I'm kind of a lazy person, so like I need a reason to write something or to make something. So now I do. I because if you just make something, it doesn't go anywhere. It is hard to be motivated. But if you get something, oh, I've worked on building my followers, and now my video has four thousand views, and people are saying it's hilarious. Wow, that feels really nice. And so I just. I'll literally just wake up one day. I'll be like, I got this idea. And literally from start to finish, from writing it to doing it, it can, at the most, it'll take four hours. And like, sure, you might not have that time in one day, but sometimes I'll have the idea one day, shoot it the next day, edit the next day, release it the next day. So that's an hour each day. Jenna Johnson's up next. Uh, We talk about her role on Shameless and the realities of the casting process. So Shameless. Shameless, yes. Was that fun? It was great. What did you do on Shameless? I played Bambi. Um, Regina King was the director and uh, such a gift such such a gift she I couldn't I don't have any any words to describe how warm and that whole cast Shanola Hampton was I was doing the scene with her and she was she greeted every extra she said hello to everybody it was a huge huge scene we were at a cookout and we were um, Kev's I played Kev's long lost sister and it was just the camaraderie on there and also just the professionalism from the crew to everybody it was the one of the best days. So how did that job come about? What's the story of that job? Um so I actually know William H. Macy and I had gone to him and for a long time I would never call in favors with people that I knew unless I knew I could kill it. And I remember finally going to him and I was like, get me in the room. I'll kill it. Get me in the room. And he's like, okay. Um, and so he got me an audition. He's the kind of guy who likes challenges like totally. that, Totally, right? like, yeah. He was like, all right, let's do this. Uh, and he got me an audition, and I killed it. And it was great because I felt so, again, this was, I had been at JRS for a while. I kind of understood everything a little bit more. And it was one of the first auditions that I really felt 
I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. I'm so excited I know what I'm doing. So I think that really helped the ease for me. And it was also just happened to be a role that I was well suited for, very much in my wheelhouse. So well, that hits two things for me mm-hmm. that are both so big. One is the fact that I think lots of people, you know, whether I'm in class teaching or in salon, uh, everyone just wants an agent instantly and they want auditions instantly. And I get it. I was, yeah. I was that person. Totally. But what you're saying is so true. There's a most people, no matter even if you're really good, you still don't know what you're doing. No. In an audition room, you're rolling this, and that's a hard learning curve and a tough pill to swallow. But I think understanding, like, well, is the work really good? Do you feel comfortable in an audition room? And if not, maybe just take a breath, because even if you get in that room, are you really ready to succeed? And that is, by class that I teach, uh, is usually people who are starting out. And that's one of the main things, because they get in here and they're like, great, I'm getting headshots, I'm getting an agent, I'm getting this, and I'm like, cool, 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 cool. You need to be able to kill it from the jump. And I wish someone had told me that. I wish somebody had said, hold up. Let's work on some stuff beforehand. And when you come in with confidence in a room, that way also you start to learn that, let's say you do the audition and it goes great, but you still don't book the part. You still go, great, I got to act today and I killed it and I'm learning so much. The problem is when you're, when every audition feels like a lifeline, it's really hard to then exist in that space of, that audition didn't go well or I didn't get it therefore I am a bad person therefore I am not enough and that kind of is going back to what grad school started to teach me was I am enough these things are sometimes out of my control but I have that built in from years of training and years of failing and all of that where you go okay cool well that sucks I could get sad about it I could be bummed I could be angry but you move on well it's also buoyed by a trust that you know what you're doing yes. so your life <laughs> won't fall apart yes for sure and I think that's so so terrifying at that first stage is you want to prove yourself but sometimes the proof when it doesn't become about the work and it becomes about the product it usually people burn out pretty quickly yeah the other thing I want to call out from that that I think is so important and I feel like people have a little shame about this is that you knew William H. Macy and you asked for a call. I just did New Amsterdam. My brother works on that show. But the idea that that's going to get you apart is crazy too. And I think accepting that when it comes to the people who are going to get the job, nine times out of ten, it's between a bunch of people who know somebody. Yes. And really then that adds a second layer to your job. Yeah. Your job is to be somebody who knows people authentically and building up a reputation that is solid enough I remember, you know, my brother was like, yeah, we can get you a tape for this. I felt more nervous for that tape than any of the others because they're looking at it like, well, it's one of the writer's brothers. He better be great. Mm -hmm. If not, that embarrasses him. Yep. There's no just, oh, yeah, let's just give him a part. No. And once you realize it's not just about being good. Mm -mm. It's about being known as someone who can deliver on this. Yes. That's, I feel like no one tells you that part. It's just how good are you in college and then go book. Oh my God, yeah. And I think that was actually what what helped me a little bit in grad school is I wasn't the top person. I wasn't the person who was always getting the leads in the shows. So I started to really you know, buoy myself up with then the work and just making sure I talked to everybody and I was out there and really making connections. And when I first got to LA, I finally started to make a rule where anyone whose first question to me was, how many auditions did you do this week? They were no longer my friend. Here's David Sullivan on uh, working with Ben Affleck in Argo. What's a Ben Affleck set like? Great. I I uh, I honestly thought that uh, that it was going to be really hard, and and obviously it was my first studio movie, so I was like. Um, 
and you know Ben Affleck he kind of carries himself with a lot of kind of uh, machismo or I guess maybe I'm projecting that on well, I mean he was a guy fully on the upswing oh like. yeah for sure and then he'd done the town and like he just like I, I just saw him as like oh no like he's gonna uh, this is gonna be tough but like he called me in two weeks before we were shooting and I only I mean I, I had two small scenes at the time we ended, it ended up being becoming one scene in the in the in the movie but like I had two small scenes he called me in called me in with like 15 other guys and he just it was like all the White House guys and it was like guys I just want you to know that I handpicked every single one of you because you guys are the people who are going to help me tell the story the best and then right, that right there I was like oh that feels so good like Ben you made me feel so good about me um, uh, and and, uh, and he they was say like, that about a lot of the most famous people is they make me feel seen yeah yeah and and like if he was willing to do that a couple weeks because he's got so many other things I mean they're shooting in four different countries like they've got 80 something speaking roles like there's so there's so much going on but he had all of us come to his offices over there in Santa Monica in his uh, we had this big boardroom and like 18 strangers he was like we're just gonna read through like the first 25 pages of the script if your role's in there obviously take your role if it's not just um, um, we'll f- everybody just has a role and so like we were just reading like White House guys somebody was reading Cranston's Somebody was reading, like everybody was just reading different roles, and it felt like a sense of play. It felt like he really wanted us there, that we were such a big part of this movie. Um, and he was just so gracious. And I was like, whoa, that is not the guy that I thought he was. And so when I stepped on set, like it, it was very, very similar. Like I, my scene, my scene was with, um, uh, with Kyle Chandler and Kyle Chandler I, I just I love him obviously because Friday Night Lights TV mm-hmm. show um, and my mom watched him in early edition and that was like her favorite show in the day um, so I I was kind of before we even shot the scene I went up and I told him hey I know you get this a lot but blah 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 and uh, and then he had this southern accent I was like oh are you where, are you from the south and like I think he's from Atlanta or maybe he's from Georgia I'm not real sure I think Georgia um, but then we just started talking like just as human beings and it was no longer like a fan talking to like his idol like he invited me into his trailer and like we were just shooting the shit for 45 minutes and just it was so it, it kind of demystified the idea of celebrity to me and the idea of like a big time actor because it's like oh we're just we're doing the same thing like you you have a bigger part and you've been doing it a little bit longer than me so I'm gonna be you someday and I'm gonna have that kid come into my trailer but um so that was my kind of relationship with him and then when we got on with Ben like uh Affleck uh he you know we did the scene or whatever and then he comes over to me and there's like four people I want to see in the scene and he comes over to me and immediately my brain is like oh no what did I mess up and uh and he was like he's like how you doing and I'm like good and in my mind I'm like fuck I'm really messing this up and he's like I think you're doing a great job and I'm like oh cool 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 you're just saying that um and then he was like what do do you think you'd say here and uh and I was like am I not saying what's in the script like what is he asking me right now am I screwing this up like what I could have sworn I said exactly and uh and I said I said something like in the script, it was like um, to hell with this guy, and and I I think I, I said I said oh, I think I just I'd say oh, fuck this guy, and he was like let's get one with you saying fuck this guy, and I'm like uh, okay for real, and he's like yeah just fuck that guy, and I'm like all right, 
And so like this was after we like told me to fuck that. Yeah, guy. yeah, 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 yeah. So like I we do the and it's a, it's a long scene. Like we start in one room of the White House, walking down the hallway. Uh, uh, Kyle Chandler has this monologue. I I end up looking at a TV, walking over to his desk, talk about choreography, like doing all that. I'm hoping that I'm I'm hitting my marks, but also trusting that I am because they didn't tell me I didn't. And uh, and then when it comes to that thing, I'm just like fuck that guy. And uh, and in my mind, I was like, "There's no way they're going to use that. They use it's the movie, like fuck that guy." And then after each take, I kept saying, "Fuck that guy." So he, in a way, like he just gave me, he gave me the confidence and the understanding that like this is a collaboration. Like, yes, I may have more experience than you, and like I'm the director and I'm the boss right now, but right now, like we're creating something together. And like he just kind of gave me freedom to to move in that world and 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 live in that point of view with maybe just a little more specificity. And last but not least, a lightning round with the amazing actress, Chloe Weber. So because of time, we got to move to a bit of a lightning round. Yeah. Um, I'm going to throw out a couple things. Give me your whatever, whatever the answer is that comes. Okay. Um, what's it like working on a big budget studio comedy? You were an office Christmas party. How is that set different or what is that experience like? It's very overwhelming. You know, you really feel like the least important important person there and, and not in a... Uh, not in like an egocentric way. I, I mean more like there, it's just so big. It's so, so big. And you realize that you're such a small part and small piece of something so enormous. Um, and um, but it's also really cool. It's cool. Do you it's find f- can you find freedom once you realize, oh, I'm just this tiny piece. So I- you can. Yeah. If you're at, at, if you're at peace with that, I think I think you can. I think, you know, for me and that particular project, I had to just come to terms with what my, what my function was. And that's a lot, a lot of when, you know, when you're starting out or if you're not a huge name, that's, and you get a part that you're really excited about. Sometimes you show up on set and it's not the side you auditioned for. It's not, you know, when it's like the sides, it's the most important scene in the movie or the show. It's your scene. But then it just kind of gets you know it gets smaller or whatever it is and you just have to be okay with uh the uh, with like with your function with a huge movie like that i think that that's really smart because also so many people when you don't have a function i think about caesar milan helping dogs who are anxious (laughs) and second you give them a job boom it's really good and i think a lot of times when people don't know the function in the scene that's when all of a sudden the weird acting bad habits happen and then you don't know what to do with your hands all of a sudden because you're just operating in space in the weirdest way um tell me oh and that 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 job too really reminded me of like tell me where to stand and what to say which is one of my favorite i say that to myself all the time when i get really caught up with like oh god what's the point of the scene and like am i really doing something good and it's just like no just tell me where to stand and what to say you know i already got the part i'm already good i'm already telling the story that you want to tell by just standing here so i'll just say my lines and and it's not being and like don't you know and it's about not being so precious especially in such a huge production like that okay i like that um what's something you've learned about acting on camera um, One practical piece of advice for existing in that frame, in a shot. Uh, how important your eyes are. It has to, people have to see see it. I think if you're experiencing it, let, you know, let the, let them see it. And, and a lot of it is so small. A lot of it, a thought can just flash in your eyes and how powerful that can be if you just have honestly I mean for me it's just like just have the courage to 
to stay up there and not look away. Cool. That's the end of the clip show. I hope you enjoyed. I hope that uh, if you hadn't heard some of these, maybe it points you in that direction. And if you already had heard the episodes, I hope um, getting to hear some of this again really uh, makes some of it stick and uh, makes it more useful for you, which is really the whole point of this thing. Uh, we'll be back next week with some new episodes. In the meantime, thank you to John Rosenfeld Studios. And even more than that, thank you to you, the listeners. Uh, we just got past 2,000 downloads. That number sounds crazy to me. Um, and it's also really exciting. So please uh, keep listening. Thank you. Uh, Please keep telling your friends. Please keep reviewing us. And uh, we always love a good shout out on social media. Uh, Until next week, thank you so much. 